What do you want on a gut level for all the marbles, obituary? What do you want? Jamie Smith is a Christian philosopher who has um, done quite a bit of research into the idea that we aren't what we eat, we aren't what we think, we're not even really what we believe, we are what we want. We are what we desire, what we love. Those are the sorts of things that actually shape us into people. Those are the things that inform how we think and what we believe. We are what we want. What do you want? Smith points out that Jesus never asked people, what do you think? He never really even asks anyone, what do you believe? What he asks them is, What do you want? What do you love? Peter, do you love me? Those are the questions that Christ is interested in. We've been talking about how worship forms us and and, and, and it forms our belief, but if it is good worship, it also forms the answer to that more important question. What do you want? It forms our loves, our desires, our hopes. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, is interested in what they believe, but he's more interested in what they want. Paul is in prison again. He ended up in prison in Philippi when he had come to Philippi, and the the church had started. Paul had ended up in prison, and now he's in prison again somewhere. We're not certain where he's in prison at the time when he writes this letter. But God began a good work in the Philippians and Paul is thankful for them because they've sent Epaphroditus, one of the members of their congregation, to visit Paul in prison. He brings some money probably, some food, probably a pen and a scroll so that Paul can write them a letter. He visits them. Epaphroditus gets sick, but then as soon as he's better, Paul sends Epaphroditus back to the Philippians with a letter for the church and Epaphroditus is excited to hand it over to Euodia, who is the the matriarch of the church in Philippi. And she takes the scroll and stands in the congregation to read Paul's letter. And they're excited to hear from Paul. And it's a hopeful and encouraging letter. And Paul uses the word rejoice more than any other book in the New Testament because he's he's somehow still full of joy, even in prison, and he's proud of the Philippians. But Epaphroditus has also mentioned some division, some confusion perhaps about Maybe how many times we're supposed to forgive someone? Seven times seems generous. Or maybe how far grace ought to extend. Euodia stands in the congregation and she reads, If then there is any encouragement from Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, then make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Look not to to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. But emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being born in human likeness, 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in the present, but much more now in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. In the middle of Paul's letter to the Philippians, he bursts into song. You may not have caught it in my reading, but the majority of the passage we just read was a hymn from the early church. Because before the church had written down any of what they believed, before there were any theological treatises, before Paul had written any of their letters, the church sang what they believed. The church had songs. Before there was anything written down or decided upon, before there were any councils, the people of God ate and they told stories and they sang songs. Sometimes we think that we form the worship, that we have a set of convictions and beliefs and that therefore we do a certain set of things on Sunday mornings. And that's kind of true, but it's more true that we've been doing these things for thousands and thousands and thousands of years before we had hammered out any of the creeds. And we are just continuing in that long tradition of letting worship form us. We, 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 our beliefs come out of our worship and not the reverse, which is kind of an odd way of thinking about it. Our worship forms us. Worship preceded ideas. The people of God sang together, and as they sang and told stories about what they had experienced, and as they ate this meal, beliefs began to emerge that eventually get written down. But Paul bursts into the song in the middle of this letter to the Philippians because the best things have got to be sung. When the Cubs won the World Series, the streets were filled with singing because we had to sing about it because we had won. You can say the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow, Praise, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, praise Him all creatures here below but it's better if you sing it and if you hear others singing it. And you can believe it when it's said, but you can really believe it when you you hear it sung. Some things have got to be sung. Worship forms us, and the best worship begins to shape the answer to that most fundamental question, what do you want? Peter just wants to be right in this passage from Matthew 18. In Matthew 16, Peter has this great moment where Jesus is asking them what, what, who, who he is, and Peter says, you are the son of the, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and Jesus says, mm, blessed are you, Simon, for God revealed that answer to you. I'm going to build my church on you. That happens in Matthew 16, chapter 20, and Peter's feeling great, 
Peter swings a lot, right? He, he, he either hits a home run or he strikes out. He's a home run hitter. He, he really goes for it. He's just had this great moment in Matthew 16, 20. In Matthew 16, 23, Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Because Peter has just questioned Jesus' plan to go to Jerusalem and, and, and be crucified. And it's this very dramatic turn for Peter and he doesn't like it at all. In Matthew 18, he takes another swing for it because he wants that feeling again. He wants another one of these, oh, blessed are you, Simon, for God revealed this to you moments. That's what he's going for. And so he, he asks, you know, if, if you know, someone's wronged me a lot, how many times should I forgive them? And Peter knows that the standard answer isn't going to suffice. So he adds a few to it and says, you know, um, maybe, maybe seven and he's hoping for a you are Peter moment. But Jesus responds, not, 70, not seven times, but 77 times. Or 70 times seven, depending on how you read it. Doesn't matter. The point is, there's no number, Peter. And Jesus tells a parable whose point is that you should regard others the same way that God regards you. And there is no number of times on the, of forgiveness that that is limited by. As we have forgiven, as we have been forgiven, so we forgive. Peter wants a new rule, a new guideline. Peter is pro-Jesus. He's excited about this religious movement that Jesus is starting, and he knows that it's better than anything that's come before, and so he assumes that seven is upping the ante a bit. Seven is the right answer. It's the perfect number. That's the way that Jesus' disciples will follow. We want there to be a point where we've done our Christian duty, and we can get on with it. Peter wants that too, but Jesus doesn't offer this. And this is a parable about forgiveness, about when you've been wronged, but I think it could just as easily be a parable about generosity. Jesus, how, many to- how-, how much ought we give? Maybe, maybe 20%? And Jesus says to them, truly I tell you, not 20%, but 120%. Let me tell you a parable about a king who gave to a certain person over and over and over, gave freely with no strings attached, kept giving. In fact, every good and perfect gift that this person ever experienced was a gift from this king. And that person went out and gave pennies on the dollar, gave 10% and checked off a box, but didn't even think that maybe the other 90% had something to do with the king. Well, that person didn't really get it. Jesus How long should I pray for my enemies before I bomb them? How long should I pray for my enemies, Lord? For one year? How long should I serve those that disagree with me? Paul, what are we supposed to do in Philippi? When there are people who eat foods that we would never eat, who look nothing like us, who do us wrong, how often should we forgive? How gracious should we be here in Philippi? You never told us. How much effort should we go in, how should we put into being hospitable towards people that don't appreciate our hospitality, Paul? What should we do? Do nothing, Paul writes, from selfish ambition or conceit. But as a rule of thumb, have the same mind as Christ, who didn't regard his equality with God as something to be used but emptied himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Jesus to Peter and Paul to the Philippians give They give them no rule of thumb other than to embody in their treatment of others the grace and forgiveness that they have themselves received. Seven times would be far easier, but it wouldn't be better. But how in the world are we supposed to live lives like that? How are we supposed to shape our wants and desires from where they might be to this place where we would want to embody this sort of gracious forgiveness to people that it's hard to be gracious with. There is no easy way. There's no handbook on how to truly embody the perspective of this parable. There's no manual on how to attain the amount of self-differentiation needed to be as gracious with others as we ought to be. But if there's any encouragement in Christ, any true love, any sharing in Christ's spirit, then maybe we could become a people who have the mind of Christ. Paul believes that it's possible for human beings to dwell together in unity, to have the autos proneo in the Greek, the same mind, not the same opinion, but the same understanding. He believes it's possible for human beings to have the same love, the autos agape, which is the same desire, the same answer to that question, what do you love? Have the same love. And he believes that we can be of one accord. And the word in Greek there is sumsukos. It's the word that we get the phrase symphony from. Be In full accord, one symphony, having one voice, many voices joined together but directed toward the same thing, the same mind, same love, same voice. He wants the church in Philippi to be a symphony. He wants them to sing the same song. And if there's any encouragement in Jesus Christ, let us have the same understanding, same love. Let us sing the same song together until our hearts beat in sync with one another like they do when we sing in unison. And to that end, Paul begins to sing a song. Maybe Euodia cannot help but sing it too as she reads the letter to the Philippian church. Worship forms us. And the possibility of living with the freedom and graciousness of Christ is made possible as we gather in worship as a symphony singing Christ to one another. In telling the Philippians how they might begin to live selflessly for one another. With one mind, with one heart, Paul sings one of the first Christian hymns. And one of the first Christian hymns they sing is about the emptying love of Christ that was not ambitious on his own behalf, but was ambitious for others. Justo Gonzalez, a theologian, writes, to be fully human is to be for others. And therefore, God's human creature is not complete Until there is another to be for. Maybe you've experienced this in your own life. This this moment of, of service, of being for someone. And the joy when you can truly rejoice in someone else's success rather than envy it or compete for it. When That is such a release. When you're able to truly be ambitious on behalf of someone else. Oh, that's a beautiful moment. 
Jesus is fully human. We talk about that, right? His divinity and his humanity. But he's not just fully human in the sense that he's let down, in the sense that he's um, taken on flesh. He's fully human in the sense that he is the human being that is entirely ambitious for others, who is entirely for others, who has emptied himself of his own ambition to the point that he can be for others completely. That's the sort of mind that we strive for, that we hope to be formed into as we worship. The mind of Christ, we gather to sing the songs of faith, to hear words that have been spoken for thousands of years, and to worship alongside of one another. We come here with the hope that perhaps even our deepest wants can be shaped more and more into the likeness of Christ. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, then come next week to Lil Street Loft. Because we're going to do an experiment in sumsukos, in being in full accord of joining our many voices into a symphony of one voice and to sing Christ to one another. It's going to be fun. It's going to start out awkward, and then by the end of it, we're all going to be really grateful we were there, and we're even going to have created something that might even be beautiful. It's going to be stepping into a very old practice that the church did before they had even written anything down. They sang songs together, because when we sing songs, something happens to us. When we sing the doxology, instead of just saying it, something stirs in us, something moves us. And at the end, we're going to have Baker Miller pie. So maybe that's all you need. But if, if there's any encouragement in Christ, come next week and join us at Little Street Law. And if you've come to Grace for a long time, um, then you, like me, every now and then take for granted the, 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 the musical gifts that we have in our congregation. There are only a handful of folks who can pull off what Davin pulls off with groups of people. Someone said to me this past week, you know, what other church in the country could do something like this? And there aren't that many. It's a real opportunity for us to let worship form us in some new ways and to that end form us into the likeness of Christ so that we don't have to be ambitious for ourselves, but we can be selflessly ambitious for others. What we worship shapes what we want. As we worship Christ, may we begin to be ambitious for others. May we discover ourselves living selflessly on behalf of our neighbors, our enemies. Pray with me. Oh God, you emptied yourself in Christ. You took on flesh, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, You were highly exalted because you were the one who was for others. You received the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We thank you and we lift our voices in praise of your name. Amen.